So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, October the 21st, and this is episode number 180 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. All the topics that we're going to discuss today are down in the video description. So welcome. I'm glad you're here. My name is Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So there'll also be related information, as always, down in the video description. If you want to listen to this because you're busy and can't stare at your screen, it's a podcast. Podbean, titled The Way to Be. All these things are on my main website also. Pages related to topics. So that is thewaytobe.org. So, glad you're here. Let's get started. You can also learn about how you can uh, submit your own questions too for future consideration. Not every question gets discussed because some of them have been answered many times over. Unless it's something that's so important, we need to talk about it frequently. How warm is it outside right now? 62 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 17 Celsius. And uh, 38% relative humidity. So if there's uh, any uncapped honey in those beehives, days like today when it's nice and dry, will be easier for the bees to dry that down and get those capped. Moving right on. The very first question comes from Alexis. Alexis says, I've been using your hive setup schematic, which includes using a slatted rack. I'm gearing up to do a 21-day cycle of OAV. That's oxalic acid vaporization. And I'm wondering where the best place to drill the hole for my Mighty Vape OAV gun will be. I never heard of the Mighty Vape. So if you want to put a link to that so that others can look it up and see what it's about, that'd be cool. I'm concerned about getting the best distribution of vapor. If I put the hole under the slatted rack at the back of the bottom board, would the slatted rack be in the way and block much of the force of the vapor? If I drill at the lip on the top of the slatted rack, is that too close to the frames and the bees? I'm assuming drilling into the hive body near the bottom isn't desirable. Anyway, just a small problem I'm stuck on. Any advice would be fantastic. So here's the thing. I've done lots of testing on oxalic acid vaporization. And specifically, I like to see where it goes. Have you ever seen inside a beehive where oxalic acid goes when you introduce it into the hive? Now, the procedures are pretty consistent. So it's not so much what piece of equipment that you're using, although I have long since abandoned pans for putting in my oxalic acid vaporization. I have a whole pile of them, by the way, sitting on a bench because the pans used to push through the front. And because they have to cool down and you have to block off the entrance of the hive and let your pan cool down for, you have a 10 minute cycle for each treatment that has to be closed up. But we want the pans to cool off before you go to the next one. So I had a whole series of pans, so I put this one in, get that going. And uh, every time you pull the pan out, there were a bunch of dead bees in the pan too, so they didn't like it. And the reason I'm telling you this is I'm giving you the kind of progression through the years of how I ended up where I am right now with the treatments and the application method that I currently use. So the pan, the other thing is the length of the arm of the pan when you introduce oxalic acid and you sublimated it. Uh, you ran that kind of right to the center of the hive and you were likely delivering oxalic acid, that initial burst, directly under the brood. Now that is the treatment area 
but it's also, there's a flash of heat that goes through there, and I'm not sure, I can't say that it injured brood. I can say that the bees react to it and move away quickly. And then once it starts to distribute, the bees start fanning and they move oxalic acid vapor all over the inside of the hive. And then they go back to their normal routine. How do I know that? Well, that's because I have observation hives and I did demonstrations. I will put a link to that video so you can see what do bees do when the OA goes into the hive. So it's very interesting. And not only that, it's going to make you less stressed as a beekeeper thinking that you might be really bothering your bees. Because once that initial delivery of the oxalic acid goes in, they move away from that blast, but then they moved right into that spot again, and they cycled it throughout the entire hive for you. So it really didn't matter. High, low, front, back, side to side. But what I would like to suggest is to err on the side of caution. Uh, and again, I haven't proven it, but if we can deliver your oxalic acid to another part of the hive and still have the same effectiveness in treatment for the destructor mite, I think, why not? So the other part of that was sticking the pan in there. This is how I arrived at the slatted rack solution. So for those of you who still wonder what a slatted rack is, it was the thumbnail picture for today. This is an eight frame slatted rack. They come in eight and 10 frame sizes. This is two inches thick top to bottom. This sits directly on your bottom board. So eight or 10 frame, whatever that happens to be. So what you did is here's the bottom board. Your entrance reducer is directly under this, and then look at this solid piece of wood along the front. So from the inside, light and gusty wind from wintertime, for example, does not blast up into your hive the way it would be if this were not here or if the slatted rack were not here. It also creates a space that some of your unemployed workers occupy under here. Also, I found that it's really helpful when I'm introducing a new swarm that I've collected, I dump them into a hive, they go right down under here, and then that lets me put all the frames in the box, eight or 10 frame, whatever it happens to be, because the bees now have somewhere to go, and then later they migrate, migrate back up onto those frames. So the question today is, should the hole be in the back? And it is on this one. This is for my example here. Slatter racks, by the way, the big space is underneath, and the shallow space, this is about a quarter inch of space between the top of these ladder racks and then of course the next box up. I use a quarter 20 screw as a placeholder right there and this is a wing nut screw or a thumb screw I think they call it um, and I drill a quarter inch hole here and the quarter inch hole really is a little snug for this so run your drill in and out several times but what I want to point out is for the case here um, look at the way this is located this is in line with the gap between these two slats. Now, if all you did was run your vapor in here and it spread out through the bottom, remember that the bees will move it around everywhere else. So they do the work for you. Now, some people just put a golf tee in here. And the reason that you put a placeholder in there is because the bees naturally are going to plug that up with propolis. So you also wanna make sure, see the space here where this is located? Wherever the hole is, for you to put your ProVap or whatever kind of oxalic acid vaporization delivery system is that has a tube on it, you want to make sure that when it goes in there, it doesn't run right up against your frames, for example, because then you would block 
the tube that delivers the oxalic acid and it will give you a blowback and possibly pop the cap off and blast you right in the face. So some people have actually had that happen to them. That has never happened to me. And that's because the length of this is as long as the tube on the ProVap. ProVap 110 is what I've been using, but guess what? That thing is shelved now. So I'm going to show you what I use now. Different piece of equipment. Other people are demonstrating it. Look at this stainless steel instant vap. Instant vap, instant vape, whatever you want to call it. Guess where you buy these in the United States? The name's right here, Laura B's. Now, if you notice, look, there's no place for your cord to plug in on it. That's why this is now the handiest oxalic acid vaporization system for delivering in out yards, anywhere else that I could find anywhere at any price. These are not cheap. It's all stainless steel housing on the outside. I think there's a big block of aluminum in here. It's all encased, so you can't really see it. But once this thing is up and running, it delivers your oxalis very fast. How is it delivered? Right through this tube here. Been used quite a bit. You also have a gauge here. Every one of these notches is a gram of oxalic acid. So you can adjust that and then you put that in here. There's a gasket at the top and you plunge it and it drops it right down into the bowl, which it has to be sizable because it retains its heat really well because the sublimation occurs almost immediately. And look at the tube there. That tube is a piece of turned brass. So it's much tougher than the ProVap 110, just calling it. By the way, I buy all this stuff. Nothing is given to me. And uh, how's it powered? This particular one, look on the bottom, it says DeWalt. These take those big DeWalt Multiflex batteries, which I already have because I use DeWalt tools. And that, if you did not have DeWalt tools, I think there's another company that they use as well. But if you have those big DeWalt batteries, like I have a DeWalt leaf blower and all that stuff, uh, they go right on here, and that means that I didn't have to buy anything extra for this. And I have 29 colonies of bees. I have one of the 60-volt, flex-volt batteries, one of the big ones, and uh, it barely went down one notch, treating 29 colonies. So I'm bringing that up. I'm not going to give you a, a live demo of that because guess what? Lots of people have already beat me to the punch on that, including Cayman Reynolds, who's done a million, bazillion, gajillion treatments with it. But at any price, if uh, you've got money burning a hole in your back pocket and you've got out yards and you don't want to buy a system that requires a source of ignition or if you don't want to have to plug into your 110 outlets and run a 200-foot extension cord, which is what I have been doing, uh, this is the easiest thing around and it goes right in your quarter inch hole in the back and it also has little teeth on the front of it. I hope you can see that. So when this goes in the back, it just sits right there. But guess what? It delivers everything so fast that I really don't have to walk away from it. And the other thing is I can go from one hive to another, one right after another, right after you've done the treatment, delivered it. It's got, uh, of course, a temperature gauge on the back. This is off, of course, and the battery's not connected. Or even when the battery's connected and the unit's off, it tells you what the current temperature is so you know if it's even cooled down before you transport it. So anyway, as soon as you pull that out, of course, you take your quarter 20 threaded screw and you put it right back in there, except for those of you who use golf tees. I'm not telling you have to use this. But these are nice because if you get a bunch of them, you would put them all in the vertical position, those awaiting treatment, if you're doing this as a group or a team or this is commercial or something. 
And then after the treatment's done, you would of course turn them all horizontal. Just for example, because then everybody would know what requires treatment and what doesn't. Keep your hive closed up for 10 minutes. Pull the cloth off. Oh, and these are the cloths that I use for the front. 100% cotton cloth. Get them damp, lay them over the entrance. It's all you need to do. And we're good to go. So I used it, by the way, the reason Lorby's name is on this, they are the only place you can buy these if you're in the United States. So L-O-R-O-B-B-E-E-S dot com. I paid full price. I get nothing for recommending them, but it's the only source to get. So there's nobody else I can recommend for you to get it from. So that's it. The best vaporizer. Of course, I'd like to know more about this uh, Mighty Vape gun. By the way, so if anybody knows about that or if you've used it and you love it, feel free to share down in the comments section here. So anyway, uh, as you can see, it was off center. And that's because there again, why take a chance and deliver a blast of high heat, 300 degrees or whatever it is at sublimation? Um, why take a chance on blasting your sensitive open brood with that when you can get equal results by introducing it as part of your uh, inner cover, if you have a feeder shim on top or something like that, I think would be less effective than using the bottom board or your slatted rack at the bottom. The bees will cycle that through unless your front's open and they can fan it right back out. That's why a cloth that's been dampened that can close that up for the 10 minutes required is super helpful. Good question. Thanks for asking. Next question is from Karen from California Novato, Novato, N-O-V-A-T-O. I never heard of that place. I'm a new beekeeper going into my first winter and would appreciate more information about what happens with brood in winter. On one hand, I've read that bees cluster to keep the brood warm during winter, but on the other hand, I've read that hives are practically broodless during winter. In the context of winter being a good time to do OAV treatments. A lot of people are talking about oxalic acid vaporization treatments. If there is brood, does it undergo the normal 21-day cycle through winter and with the queen laying several rounds of eggs during the cold season? Or does the development slow down such that a batch of eggs laid at the beginning of winter takes several months to develop, emerging in spring? I'm figuring that in temperate California with very few freezing nights and many days above 50 degrees, that I can expect the hive to continue to generate new bees all through the winter. What about colder regions? Okay. Um, the biology of the bee does not change due to cold weather. So there are different species of animals, for example, that the temperature does impact the gestation period once eggs are fertilized and produced. Uh, it's not the case with honeybees. So it's still the 21 days if it's a worker bee, three days as an egg, and off we go. Now the difference is, yes, reduced brood. So depending on the time of year, and the beauty of uh, my situation here is that I have observation hives. I can see what the queens are doing. And uh, we do thermals because thermals tell us kind of how much brood is present. And that's because Right at the brood area, regardless of the time of year, summer, winter, fall, spring, it doesn't make a difference. It's going to be 94 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit on the brood that's developing. So when we see a larger brood pattern, we get a better, larger heat signature when we shoot thermals. 
And then when we find out the, the hottest spots in the cluster, for example, are only in the 70s or 60s, and we realize brood's not there. It's really that simple. So for here, now this is going to differ depending on where you are all over the United States because I'm going to throw a monkey wrench into it. Brood size and presence is not only dictated by weather and the length of the day. It's also dictated by resources available in the environment to your bees. Some people go broodless mid-July. So it depends because if there's a dearth, then there won't be resources for your bees. Therefore, brood drops off in response to a lack of resources. Why continue to build infrastructure if it can't be supported? Why grow a population that you can't feed? That's really what it is for the bees. So they can go broodless or reduce brood at any time. And really that's dictated not by the queen, although she does produce the eggs, she does lay the eggs. They change how much and how often they feed the queen. These are workers, these are nurse bees. And they go around and so the dietary restrictions that they provide to the queen trigger the queen's production of more or fewer eggs. Now, if she lays eggs that they can't afford to take care of, it's called uh, policing up the cells. They go around and they consume eggs that they can't afford to feed because the resources aren't coming in and they're not stored and they're not available. The other thing is another reason they police up eggs too is if, for example, that queen mated with something genetically too close to her, for example, one of her own drones, and if those worker bees, if the nurse bees sense that that drone is closely related and its egg is there and it's developing, or that worker is closely related, they consume those eggs too. So just a little sideliner there. But so here's the thing. You want to, if you're looking for the window of opportunity to treat for oxalic, or treat with oxalic acid vaporization to get those phoretic mites, which by the way, that term I understand is even changing. Phoretic means they're exposed. Some people are gonna call them traveling mites now, the traveling phase. And uh, it doesn't really matter. It just means that your varroa destructor mites are exposed. They're out from under the pupa caps. So when they're out, they can be exposed to oxalic acid and they can die. And that's the high target. And that's why um, I've gotten away with it here several times. A lot of people don't know that probably. But uh, when you do a really good single or double treatment at a time when they have almost no brood, you get a very effective treatment against the Varroa destructor mites and those that count mites and the bean counters that get right in there and know exactly what the efficacy is have recognized that you get up to 96% of the varroa mites that are in the hive. Here's the other philosophy that I'm going to talk about right now too. And it is some people have given up counting mites. They don't do it at all anymore and they just prophylactically treat their entire apiary. That's your decision, but uh, it's really important in my opinion to know what your varroa destructor mite loads are. You need to probably know which colonies are doing the best and which ones you want to reproduce from next year, for example. Uh, because is this is reinforced for me more and more year after year, season after season. Uh, every colony in your apiary affects every other colony in your apiary. There is so much drift going on, it is almost unbelievable. Bees, workers, uh, foragers are likely to go to any other colony at any time. 
it's really interesting to me. And uh, that's all I'm going to say kind of about that because it's something I'm still working up the details on. But uh, worker bees foraging are likely to come. It's called bee drift. But they can just show up and start supporting another colony at any time. And so you can have a colony that just sees its numbers dwindling because they've gone to another colony to live. It's really interesting. But what this means is they're sharing disease. If any of the colonies in your apiary are diseased, that's going to get shared around over time. Uh, the kind of the sweet spot for the Varroa destructor mites, this is why often people are brand new to beekeeping and they just go treatment free. I'm not counting mites. I just have really good bees and I'm going to work with the bees that make it and those that don't won't. And then they get a really good first winter and then they get a pretty decent second winter. And the thing is, see, it's working. It's everything I'm doing is just fantastic. And, and look at them. They're just handling everything. They're just the best bees ever. And then the third winter, between that third and that fourth winter, if you haven't done anything to address mite loads, if you don't know your mite loads, now you might, let's, you know, never, never say never, or everything's not 100% absolute, but the statistically, the people that are going to fail, fail between their third and fourth year. This also coincides with when a lot of people quit beekeeping. So you get beginners, you feel like it's beginner's luck. Everything went great. You got all this honey and everything else. But unless you're counting mites and unless you understand what your brood levels and your brood issues might be, and uh, how well your bees are or are not doing in the environment that you reside in, uh, you might not be in for the long haul. You might find yourself losing a big pile of bees. So please know your mite levels. And then I'll fall back on what I was about to talk about before, but this end of November, beginning of December timeframe for me is when I see the temperatures in all of my clusters drop dramatically, and that's they're in decline right now. So if the queen is laying, and she probably is right now, we're in the 60s, uh, there are some environmental resources coming in, but uh, her laying is way off. And I can tell you how I know that looking at an observation hive. I cannot see four of the interior surfaces in the observation hives because these are three frames. I see the outsides of the number one and the number three frame. But if I see the queen going across that frame, and I do, I spot them, and then I write it on my whiteboard in the Way to Be Academy building, which is just a shed for bees, uh, I write when I see the queen and if she's pausing to lay eggs. And guess what she's not been doing? She's not laying eggs. They're just tooling around. Now, how do I know that there are uh, new bees being produced in there? In the absence of seeing the queen lay eggs, what else can I look for and know that I have brood production going on at least within the last, you know, 25 days. And I say 25 days because I'm looking at those fuzzy, silver, brand new, freshly emerged worker bees. So when you see them tooling around and they're totally covered in fuzz and uh, they're kind of not deliberate about what they're doing. They're just kind of doing random things, but they're distinctive from the other bees because they're brand new. So we know that we have some production going on there. Because these in the wintertime, of course, will be in the frames that are the most protected by the cluster and therefore out of your view. So you can get very good efficacy. Now, depending on where you live, this part of California, you need to talk to other beekeepers. 
Um, I realize it's not, if it's in the 50s, please don't pull apart your hive and try to do a Varroa count. Your times for Varroa destructor mite counts and tracking your hives to see uh, which ones have the biggest viral loads. And when I say viral load, it just goes hand in hand with the number of mites that you're finding. Uh, the other thing is, if you've got bottom boards that can be removed, if you've got trays that you can pull, you can do those any time of year. So you clean out all your trays, let's say on Monday and on Thursday, you pull them out again and you look at them to see if you just have dead mites. Because mites don't live forever. They die of old age eventually. But guess what? The mites that are in your hive in the wintertime will live many months. It's a terrible truth. And not just that, they live that way um, with reduced brood. And so they're all feeding on the fat bodies of your worker bees and spreading their diseases at the same time. So all those bees are getting liposuction and they don't want it. They don't need it. They're already trimmed. They're already fit. They don't need it. So when you go into winter with a viral load generated by these varrodestructor mice who are going to continually feed on your valuable bees, um, the damage is not immediate. It's uh, a sublethal dose that eventually causes them to dwindle. Well, then if they don't die immediately, what do they do? Well, they start losing weight. They can't metabolize the food and resources that they have very well. Their longevity is reduced, so they don't end up foraging as long as others would. They don't do the jobs inside the hive for as long as they otherwise would because they have to migrate to advanced positions before they're mature, before they normally would if the colony were completely healthy. So the numbers begin to dwindle because productivity is down and overall colony health declines over an extended period of time. So find out when your brood is the lowest. And for me, end of November, 1st of December. And yes, they do produce brood. And no, it doesn't change. It's still a 21-day cycle, egg to adult. So that goes unchanged. Next question, number three, comes from Jim in Burlington Flats, New York. It says here, you mentioned that new bees, nuke or package, should be treated with OA immediately. Are you saying the first day you place them in their new hive, or do you give them a few days to acclimate? Okay, that's not what I said. So I'm glad this question is asked because I'm going to clear that up for Jim and others who may have the wrong idea. This is related to packages only. When you get a nucleus hive, for those who don't know, a nucleus is usually a five box or a five frame box of bees that you bought. There's a queen in there. All the brood is there. You're buying the frames. You're buying uh, bees in all stages of growth and development. Basically, you bought a small colony of bees. If they've got varroa mites, if they've got small hive beetles, they've got them. You're not going to do anything you know, in a single treatment on that colony if it's a nucleus because there are going to be a bunch of mites if they exist in that colony and they likely do they're going to be underneath the caps so you don't have the same advantage that you do to control the mites as you do when you receive a package of bees the package of bees is all exposed bees there's no comb there's no infrastructure it's probably three pounds of bees and then you've got a queen in a cage and she's shipped with them now, the bees that are in that package aren't even from that queen, likely. And the queen's ready to lay and ready to produce. And that's why I don't say treat them immediately. Because I don't want them to associate the introduction of that queen because they were introduced to that queen in transit. They dumped a bunch of bees in a package. They're going to mail them or somebody's going to pick them up. Or maybe your bee club does big group purchases or something like that. 
but the queen has only been with them for a couple of days, possibly. And she's still in her cage. So they're just starting to spread her pheromones throughout that group of bees. We don't want to associate either the new queen in those bees or the new introduction to a new location in a new hive with the stress that comes from an oxalic acid vaporization treatment. So how long do I suggest you wait? And I say the same thing all the time. So I've never said immediately, but you want to do it before the ninth day because uh, we're failing safe there. If that queen goes into production right away and let's say the hive you put them in already had drawn comb, maybe use better comb or something else or provided them a space that they could start laying eggs, storing their resources right away. So you're safe to wait the seven days and then do a single oxalic acid vaporization treatment. And if you do that right with the right dose, closing up the entrance for 10 minutes and making sure that that cycles through there for the proper amount of time, then you're going to find out you get that high reduction of varroa destructor mites. And if you're lucky enough to have a removable tray at the bottom, you'll be able to see the mite drop within 48 hours. And you'll know then what the load was on them. That's why I always say when you get a package of bees, you're in a perfect position to really treat them. But it's never upon immediate, you know, as soon as you receive them. Now, there is a method that I may have described that I do not use myself. And that's oxalic acid spray. Some people mix it with sugar syrup and they can spray the package. And of course, that's before you install the package. Uh, but I don't personally do that. If you want to read more about that, you would go to a website like betterbee.com, look into oxalic acid, and then it will talk about dribble, spraying. Right now, the three methods of treatment with oxalic acid that are approved are the spray, the dribble, and the oxalic acid vaporization. And that's it. So those are described there. And my preferred, my personal preferred method is the vaporization. It had the highest efficacy. And you don't have to worry about temperatures either. Oxalic acid vaporization can be delivered anytime the cluster is relaxed. So the other part of this I probably should mention is if it's below 60 outside, if it's down in the 50s, uh, your bees are clustered. The colder it is outside, the tighter the cluster of bees inside. The more they're clustered, the less that oxalic acid vapor is going to penetrate the cluster. They're going to fan their wings and everything. So you want to try to find one of those warmer days, like maybe it hits 60 degrees uh, the last week of November or the second week of December. You get some weird day where it gets 60 and it's sunny outside. That will be the loosest cluster, and that's when you really want to take an opportunity to treat them. And uh, not to over promote that product right there, that gun that uh, Laura Bees is selling right now, but that thing is on the shelf convenient. In other words, we get this nice day, we grab the oxalic acid and we grab that uh, delivery system, put a battery on it and zip out there and start treating hives. There's no reeling out everything, dragging a line around, using some kind of inverter, uh, like the pans, when we had to hook them up, I had one of those big batteries that car dealerships use uh, to start up their car batteries and their cars that are in the parking lot and things like that. Still have it, but I don't see myself ever using that again unless I have to start my car for some reason. But uh, that new vaporizer system is the handiest thing ever. I think it helps people when you have that because one of the reasons a lot of people don't treat 
with oxalic acid vaporization, other than the risks, of course, there are health risks when using oxalic acid vaporization. You have to put on the gear, so you have to put on the respirator, you have to protect your eyes. Um, you have to assume that it's going to fail, even though I've never had an OA system fail. But uh, you have to be protected just in case it did. Eyes, respiration, skin, stuff like that. But uh, it's a grab-and-go system. We have a hot afternoon. I can treat, you know, 20 colonies in an hour and a half and be done and not have anything to wrap up or store, rinse that thing once it's cool with cold, fresh water, and we're done. Simple. So the easier it is, the more likely you are to use it to your treatments. I know there's a lot of people out there that intend to treat their colonies for the varroa mites, and instead they end up at this time of year crossing their fingers, hoping and trying to make up for it with some kind of nutritional blast uh, to try to get them really going and keep them really healthy in spite of the fact that they have varroas instead of treating. And that's just the slow burn. That's the uh, ultimately they have the potential to still fail under the pressure of varroa destructor mites. Did I answer that whole question? Yeah, don't treat immediately. You have nine days. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't treat uh, the nucleus that you received. It just means you're not going to have the same uh, effectiveness with your treatment. So number four, Tim from Lebanon, Kentucky. Hey, Fred, I'm a 15-year-old first-year beekeeper. Welcome to beekeeping. And I'm glad to see teenagers doing beekeeping. I could not be more impressed. Yesterday, I was in a classroom full of teenagers. Of course, they were older teenagers because they're college level. All biology students gave an hour-long presentation. Very horrifying to meet these people and know that uh, our scientific future is good and that beekeepers are starting to get younger and doing things like this. So anyway, my queen appears to not be laying eggs and the population has gone way down. They're only using the second brood box. Is it too late in the season to replace the queen? If so, what should I do? So now this is Tim in Lebanon, Kentucky. So if somebody else is watching me and you're in Lebanon, Kentucky and you're an experienced beekeeper, I would appreciate it if you would respond to Tim's question do you have a local uh, brood reduction right now? Because this time of year here, to see a queen not laying, we've already described it here, uh, but I'm in the northeastern United States. I'm in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm in Ag Zone 4. Uh, so my queen has laid off production. So this does not mean at this time of year, if your queen's not laying, that, oops, you need to replace the queen. First of all, replacing a queen this time of year, I kind of don't recommend. And that's because uh, by the time you generally catch that, They've reduced their numbers so much that you're kind of investing in a losing cause. They need to have enough bees uh, to continue their eusocial behavior and all their tasks that they need to do to survive winter and, and also suffer through the attrition that they're going to have. Bees are going to die of old age all winter long. Your longest lived bees in your hive through winter, one, it's going to be the queen. The second part of that is going to be your fat bodied nurse bees and they will live several months. So they're very different from your worker bees, say in June or July. So I would check in with other beekeepers in the area to see if they're reduced also. I would just do the best I can for the queen, uh, make sure that they have the resources that they need. They're in the second box, you say, so uh, make sure that we have enough honey and resources on for them to get through winter. Emergency resources, dry sugar works, sugar bricks work, a fondant works also. 
Had great success with fondant last year. Gonna promote it again. High life fondant. Four and a half dollars for a two and a half pound pack of fondant that can save your colonies of bees. So that's what I would do. Check in with people that are around me. Uh, see if their queens are also low. If it's a normal rhythm of where you live, it is here. So I wouldn't even be concerned. If I had a queen not laying, most of them aren't, or they're laying so sparsely that uh, the brood is dwindling, and that's fine because that's the natural rhythm for the time of year where I am. Next one, question five. This comes from Russell. It says, first year, two hives in Newark, Ohio. Planning on expanding next year. How do you determine how many hives an apiary can handle? Okay. I'm going to bring up a website, by the way, for those of you who are listening or watching right now. Write this down, please. It's called beescape.org. B-E-E-S-C-A-P-E.org. And what you're going to do is when you look there you will be able to find out what your season is like for beekeeping. Is there a bunch of agricultural activity there that is bringing in a heavy pesticide load that your bees could be exposed to? That's on there. Do you have a summer, spring, fall dearth? That's on there also. So it looks at forage and they are, I don't want to say creepy, but it's pretty accurate. Like in other words, somehow they're shooting the landscape and knowing what the landscape is providing uh, for forage for your bees. Very interesting. The other thing is they talk about uh, wild environmental resources for your bees. In other words, if you had swarms, for example, the likelihood that they would find a natural cavity to occupy. Information like that is on there. It's a very good resource. So the other thing is, and now we're gonna get into an area of beekeeping where people make observations that I find very interesting. And I even have question marks over my head about this too. I think the best indicator, in other words, let me backtrack. Some people feed their bees profusely, like every hive gets a tub of sugar syrup this time of year, for example. When you supplemental feed your bees in a very heavy and profuse way, you have no idea if they're being supported by the environment or not. And that's because you supplemented them. So now let's backtrack and look at people that kind of fall into a more natural category. Dr. Leo Sharashkin would come to mind. He does not feed his bees at all. I only, I do feed my bees. I feed the ones that uh, are late season swarms. If I do a walk away split, I tend to put a, a one time uh, half gallon serving of sugar syrup on them to keep them just in case bad weather comes along. Uh, so anytime I have a new colony starting out, I give them a feed boost. The rest of my colonies get no supplemental feed. And I just mentioned the fondant that I put on my hives. That is an emergency feed if the bees need it, if they've consumed the honey that's left on going through winter, that's on top on top of the insulated inner cover. And last winter, none of the colonies even chewed through one of these all the way. So an example of what I found in spring is this, which is a very good sign. Number one, it showed me that they used the resource somewhat. Number two, it shows me they didn't run out. 
And that's our goal with our bees going through winter. We want them to have an emergency resource and they won't, we don't want them to exhaust their resources and starve out. Now this leads me to, if we're not feeding the bees, how do we know that the environment is providing enough for the bees? So if without feeding your bees supplementally, they are storing enough honey on the hive, for me that's 50 pounds or more surplus, then we would assume that the environment is providing enough for that colony of bees. So then let's say if you started with four colonies of bees and they all had enough surplus going on and you added three more the following year and they continue to build an adequate surplus, then the environment must be providing what they need. Unless you're one of these heavy supplemental feeders, then you don't know if they're oversaturating the environment when it comes to getting natural nectar and natural pollen and things like that. Some people put pollen packs on their hives. Some people put pollen on their hives frequently, especially in spring, to give this massive buildup. Commercial beekeepers do that. They need the numbers. So they would never know, is the environment providing for the bees that we have installed there. If you're commercial, chances are you're migrating your bees around. So you really don't care or know if the environment that they're in for that time frame supports the bees. For the backyard beekeeper, that's my group. And that's who I focus on. You'll know because eventually you'll have so many hives that they will start to produce less. And that'll be a consistent low yield of honey and resources. So then if you find out and this is interesting, because so I have 29 colonies, we drop them down to 25 colonies. I'm just kind of guessing right now, but I think there's 25 colonies out there. If I get rid of half of them, okay, let's just drop it to 12 colonies. If I had just 12 colonies, the uh, if the environmental resources being provided to your colonies all of a sudden seem to explode, now we've got three, four, or five supers going on in the middle of a big nectar flow, then we realized that at the time when we had twice as many colonies and it appeared to have half the yield per colony, then we were kind of hitting that threshold of colony saturation. Now we're already doing something unnatural when we keep all those bees in our backyard because we have environmental studies going on that show in places where beekeepers are not how many colonies of bees would there naturally be there? Now, honeybees are non-native to the United States, but they spread out on their own. And this is why when they're looking for another cavity to occupy, when there's a swarm, they bivouac somewhere, but then they tend to fly well off. Like they might go a thousand yards away before they're willing to move into another cavity if it's available. So they would disperse themselves and this guarantees fewer bees, more resources, and therefore, more resources per colony. So we're already, we're fighting the natural side of that. But I'm on the end of, if I look up Beescape, for example, I have excellent environmental resources. So unless a whole bunch of other beekeepers move into where I am, we do have quite a few beekeepers near me. But uh, I don't believe we're saturated yet. And that's because they're getting what they need and storing surplus without supplemental feed. So that's how you find out for your own area. And then with your own, because it, it did, I was thinking about this when somebody was talking about this very topic. When I had eight hives of bees, it seemed like the yields were much higher. I had troubles keeping up with uh, the amount of surplus honey that they were storing.
So I could have actually exceeded um, normal hive limits. And I'm trying to remember though, this is why record keeping is so important, was I giving them a lot of sugar syrup in spring and did I really load them up in fall and things like that. So I've tapered way down what I provide as an auxiliary resource for my bees uh, in spring and fall. It's only, as I mentioned before, tiny colonies, swarms collected, things like that. And then that's only momentary support for them. Once they're mature and kicked off, all of my nucleus colonies get zero feed. All of them. Those are the nukes. That's when I set up a little five frame. I don't feed them at all. Everything they get is from the environment and they do extremely well. So I don't feed them. They haven't been fed. They're not fed now. We just leave them on their own and they do extremely well. So you'll find out if you don't feed your bees. I guess that horse is dead. I've been beating the topic. Number six. This comes from Pam, La Crosse, Wisconsin. It says, could I use double bubble to insulate a lay-ins hive instead of wool? Place some on each wall with the space between. Also, would you recommend Langstroth or lay-ins for a first colony? Okay, well... This is double bubble. So what I would recommend, I think I'll give you a link, by the way, to a video that shows how double bubble works. And the reason is because determining the R factor, it requires so much airspace in between. You have a layer of double bubble. We've got, if it's a lay-ins hive, they have a very thin outer veneer. And then if it's, you know, like one of Dr. Leo's, it comes with wool inside. Um, so the R factor, the R value, now of wool, wool's inexpensive by the way. There are a bunch of sheep ranchers that have surplus wool that they don't like, that they don't need. Uh, it doesn't make the grade or something. It has to do with when it was sheared and how dirty it is and all of that. Uh, Dr. Leo uses dirty wool. It's not washed. It's nothing. It's got flax in it, I think. Anyway, uh, the R value of double bubble with the airspace and uh, inch and a half or two inch gap in between, for example, would exceed uh, the wool R value if you were using this stuff. So I can say that off the top of my head. Uh, I also don't put this anywhere where it's exposed directly to the bees. Some other people apparently do. I don't do that, but I'm just using it. It's a vapor barrier and it also, there's something called Reflectex, it's another company and sometimes it's just an aluminum foil film itself, but uh, that keeps the heat retained and keeps it from migrating or transferring to the cold that's outside. So if I were building a lands hive, I'm not talking about just the gaps and trying to stuff everything in there. If I were building it, I think I would uh, wrap it with double bubble and then I would attach the, um, the veneer, that quarter inch or whatever it is, material that goes on the outside and I would uh, put that over this all the way around and underneath as well. And that would satisfy that. And then when I nailed the interior panels on to these support structures, I would put the second layer over the support structure and then that inside veneer that gets nailed on would be nailed over that. So again, the wood would be in contact with the bees, double bubble, we have a layer outside and inside 
of the frame that it's built onto. So then you would also have to accommodate that when you're doing your material thickness specs and things like that. But that's personally what I would do because this stuff will never degrade. It can't absorb moisture. You're not going to get mold and mildew on it. So there, I see a lot of pluses to that. But uh, if it came already built, you don't have access to those cavities. So I wouldn't surface mount it, I guess is what I'm saying. But I'll link that for those who want to know more about the R value and how that's achieved. So the second part of this is, would you recommend Langstroth or Lands for a first colony? So this comes into play. I have both of those here. And uh, I don't know how old Pam is. I don't know how strong you are. I don't know if you want to lift boxes. I was giving a demonstration here recently, and we had to lift honey boxes off of the hives. And uh, they're very heavy. So that's something that's good for people to know when they're considering beekeeping. So when you go to lift even a medium super, when it's chock-a-block with honey, it's heavy. We're talking over 40 pounds. Now, if you have upper body strength and your, your hands are healthy and you, you want a good workout, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, for some people, that's a showstopper. Uh, let's say you had to lift a full deep box. Could you lift more than 70 pounds? Uh, some people do double deeps, and you have the potential for that second deep box to be also be wall-to-wall -wall honey. So you're at 70 pounds of honey plus the box. Uh, when you go to lift that, then, uh, you know, backyard beekeepers don't have to do that very often, but you still need to be physically capable. So the reason I'm saying this is Langstroth has the most uh, available choices when it comes to equipment, frames, foundation, Everything begins at Langstroth, and that's because it's made for commercial beekeepers. Uh, so all these Langstroth, everything's specced out for the Langstroth size, eight or 10 frame boxes, mediums, shallows, and so on. So you have a lot of options with equipment. So you only gave me two choices, then you said Lands for the first colony. Now the Lands hive is completely different. It's insulated, but you can also build a Langstroth hive that's insulated. You're not bound to just have three quarters of an inch of uh, wooden material there. So we have another option I'd like to add in there. How about the long Langstroth? So if you had a Lands and a long Langstroth, the long Langstroth has the standard deep frames that are associated with the Langstroth hives. You can easily lift those frame by frame. The Lands hive has deeper, larger frames, and they're heavier when they're covered in honey, of course. That's the heaviest, capped honey frames. I have a bunch of them. I have a scale out there because I want to weigh them. I don't want to bother my bees right now because it's still cold and they're still bringing in resources. So I'm trying not to disrupt them. But when, on my next hot day, I want to weigh those frames. But the problem that I run into with the Lands hives, and now I have two of them and they're fully occupied, they're fully active, they're doing great. I like the design. It's just that their frame designs are singular. Uh, you need an extractor. If you're going to ultimately one day use an extractor, you're going to need one big enough to handle Lands frames. So even I don't have one of those. So there are issues with going to the Lands uh, horizontal hive format, and that's because uh, the frames, everything's unique. So you would have to then probably go all Lands. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Just know that now you can't go and get all the other stuff that other people are using. Um, so I would throw in the middle of that the long Langstroth hive. Uh, so horizontal format, anybody can use it. Kids can use it. 
kids can pull those frames. Uh, elderly people that still want to keep bees. You know, you're getting older and you've got arthritic fingers and hands and there's a lot of pain associated with lifting heavy boxes and stuff. You know, if my dad were still alive and he were into beekeeping, I would not have him in a standard Langstroth box design. I would definitely have him in a horizontal long Langstroth. So, and the lands, they're working great, but everything is just unique. But if, you, if you're into natural comb and you want to do cut comb and you want to crush and strain the honey when you extract and things like that, very expensive for the bees because now they have to replace all of the beeswax that you've used up when you crush and strain. But uh, a lot of people do do that and they like it, you know, so it's another way to go. Um, so between the two, though, if you're physically capable, I say Langstroth. If you're older or if you're young or if you don't have much upper body strength, you can't grip and lift things very well, horizontal hives are keeping people in beekeeping that otherwise could not do it. So that's my, that's my two cents on that. And that's just a straight opinion. Lots of people have very specific types of hives they like and they want everyone else to like that kind of hive or they're, you're their enemy. So there's top bar hive clubs that don't want anybody to talk about any other kind of hive. So the least expensive beehive setup out there would actually be a top bar hive. But you want to understand everything that's involved in top bar beekeeping. So don't just go out there and jump in. Get a mentor. Question number seven comes from Jolie. Could the Ross Round system be adapted to a long Langstroth hive? This is an easy answer. Yes. The long Langstroth hive takes deep Langstroth frames. Now you can modify it to take mediums. I personally wouldn't do that. I'd let the whole thing be designed for deep frames. And uh, a company called Ciracell, C-E-R-A-C-E-L-L, makes full deep frame sizes for the Ross Rounds, and they go in there. So here's what I would do. By the way, for those of you who don't know, I don't use queen excluders. Instead, I use the biology of the bees to dictate where I'm going to put honey supers and things like that. If it's vertical, if it's horizontal, I wait until they start to make those frames of nothing but honey with no brood in them, and I have single entrances, no venting. So then once they start the honey area, I skip a frame or two, and that's when I would put in that Ross round that you're talking about. Uh, Cirocell makes them their standard deep Langstroth frames. And uh, you need a high population of bees. And uh, so you need a really strong, vibrant, booming colony. People get frustrated and they fail when they get a swarm this spring, this past spring, and they have high expectations. They put a bunch of supers on and they put on hog halves and Ross rounds and they want all these other things to happen, flow supers. And they want all these things to happen from this swarm of bees. Um, generally, they don't grow fast enough. Their numbers aren't strong enough. They don't have the resources as far as bee power goes to get out and bring in the surplus that they need to fill things like uh, these comb systems. For those of you who don't know what a Ross round is, I'm going to go ahead and put a Ross round video link down there. So you can see what they are. And they do. They already make them for horizontal formats because it's for a Langstroth deep box. I tried them this year myself. Put them on the wrong colony. They did not finish them out. Very disappointing. 
But uh, yeah, Cirrusel makes them already, so they're out there. Next one comes from James. Do you think the spray repellent made to get bees out of honey supers would work to get bees out of a structure like a home or a tree, or would it be like smoke and just drive them deeper inside? Maybe if the spray nozzle was attached to a long, small, flexible tube to insert deep inside. I see people wanting bees removed in my town, but it requires destroying stuff. I thought maybe building a box out of a fine mesh hardware cloth and placing it over the entrance as they try to escape. Also, at what outside temp during the summer would you open the vents in a hive? Okay, I don't have, I don't do any venting in my hives, but I'll address these other two things. What you're talking about when you use um, a, a bee repellent spray that's used in fume boards, um, there's several, I've talked about them on my channel before, and uh, they're not my favorite way to get bees out of honey. The escape boards are, but uh, I think what we're talking about, it's a forced abscond if you're trying to use that stuff. And if you Google search that, or if you get on YouTube and you look for forced abscond, that's, that's what you're looking for. There's a guy named Yappy the Bee Man, and he did a whole video and he had a very logical approach to it. The bees were in a tree, they needed to get them out of a tree and he found where the bottom of the cavity was that they were in. Because you can't spray it in the entrance, you want them to go out the entrance. So you're trying to create an undesirable environment for the bees to leave. And so he did that video, Google or YouTube search, Yappy the Bee Man, Forced Abscond. And you'll see his procedure for that. The other thing is that you would be looking up and keep in mind I don't do either of these methods. But uh, you could do a trap out, it's called. And that's when talking about the mesh and things like that, it would be the next thing you would look up, how to trap out bees. I like the trap out better than a forest abscond if you're talking about a structure, and here's why. You wanna get the bees out on their own time if you're gonna do that. Now, a removal is when you bring guys in like Randy McCaffrey, 626 Dirt Rooster, uh, Jeff Horchoff, guys like that, that cut away the structure. They're knowledgeable about structure. They know that what they're taking apart, somebody else is going to have to repair. They're going to remove the bees, but more importantly, they're also going to remove all of the comb, the honey, all of the detritus that's associated with having a colony of bees living in a cavity. Because if the bees are forced out, you still have all of this stuff in the cavity and somebody's gonna to have to deal with that. So your problem is really not over with. And you wanna keep other bees from moving into that space. So I kind of like the trap out method better than a forced abscond. Now the difference is this is gonna take a while. But what you're doing is every bee that flies out of there goes through a system where they get trapped and when they come back, they go into a secondary box. It just doesn't block the hole. The escape cones and things like that are over the hole. So what happens is the bees that are residual inside, so we're talking about all the nurse bees, storekeeper bees and stuff like that, they're consuming resources in the walls. And I like that idea because they're gonna use up the stored honey, they're gonna use up pollen and things like that. And eventually they're gonna to have to come out. So then all that would in theory be left behind would be the honeycomb and that's beeswax. So I don't see a problem with that being in the wall by itself. So I like the trap out method far better than the forced abscond, which actually might not work that well. 
we don't know for sure, but there's at least one video that you can look at for that. Um, and as far as at what outside temp during summer, would you open the hives? It gets insanely hot and humid here in Texas. So instead of venting the hives, and the reason I've explained this a lot before, but I'll explain it now, but uh, wherever there is venting, upper venting, lower venting, a middle access, I have a single entrance at the bottom of the hive. Um, if there's an upper vent, uh, you run the risk of them laying eggs and having drone brood or something up in the top of your hive near that vent because they keep their brood near where these venting sources are. But if you want to cool your hives, I like those sail canopies. They're called, uh, you're a backyard beekeeper, you don't have acres you know, to cover, your hives are probably in a fairly central spot. They're almost like trampoline material for lack of a better description. It's a weave that creates shade over your bees, but rainwater and everything would pass right through it. If you had a wind event, it wouldn't act like a sail and, you know, rip everything up. But I would much prefer some kind of structure over your hives to provide them shade if you're in a really intensely hot area where you get into the hundreds and it stays that way for a while. Because just having shade over your beehives provides them all they need, assuming that they have the secondary and most critical resource water. If they have access to fresh water, they're going to keep themselves cool. But you can add to that comfort for your bees and lessen the load on them by providing some kind of intermediate shade. That's what I would do if I was in a really hot area as described here. So that was question number eight. Check out Yappy the Bee Man. Forced abscond. Question number nine is the first one I've ever gotten from somebody named Anonymous. Hey Fred, what do you think about putting reptile heated pads on the floor and turning it on only when temps go below freezing or in early spring when the brooding starts? Okay, there's a philosophy about this. And I just happen to have one, by the way. I have several of these, but I don't use them for what you're thinking. But I just want to show people that are watching, this is a heat pad. It's got adhesive on the back. You can, I use, I also raise chickens, so you can use these when you have peeps, spring peeps, so that uh, this can be on the bottom and it keeps them warm or you have to heat them with a light or something like that. Would I put something like this on the bottom of a beehive and then have a thermostat on it so that it comes on as described here? I would not. And I want to give you my philosophy behind that. What do the bees need and how much should you be helping them when they're in their cavity? So they need shelter. They need protection from wind and weather. So rain should not be able to get in. Driving wind should not get in there. Do you know that chickens are much the same? My chickens are in unheated chicken coops. And I get this question a lot too. People want to put heat lamps in chicken coops. And that is one of the most unhealthy environments I've ever seen when people do that. I'm a licensed poultry technician. Um, I've been doing chickens for over 20 years. And uh, the thing is, if you bring in auxiliary heat, you create a secondary dew point somewhere. So if you have these light bulbs and things like that in chicken coops, you see that we have an artificial hot area. And then in other areas, there's condensation now where it otherwise would not have been. So what we want to do is have an environment for the bees that the bees sustain themselves. What we really want to do, and this is now we're just, this is my opinion. Um, we don't want our bees to need our help. 
to survive when it comes to climate control inside the hive. Your job is, of course, to size the structure that they're in to the number of bees that are in the hive and provide them with enough resources. So this time of year, that's honey left on uh, for those bees to survive winter. We don't want a huge space well beyond the bees because that's difficult for them to manage in. But we want a space where the bees can cluster, be sheltered, and be protected from the elements. And then they'll manage the rest on their own. If we start to play with that and we want to add, you know, fans and vents and thermal things, you know, I don't know what the extent of that might be. But uh, we create another thing that has to be continued. In other words, if you start providing heat in some spot, this would not occur like that in nature at all. Uh, would that draw the bees down closer to the heat source then when it comes on instead of rising as they naturally would through their food and resources and then having that little heat capsule around them because they have no top vent, they have no air movement that they don't control, they control the air that comes through the entrance. If you make an upper vent, you remove the control by the bees. Now they have something else that they have to contend with because a lot of people change these configurations through the year. And when you do that, the infrastructure of the bees has to be modified by the bees to accommodate the new change in climate inside their hive. And this happens when people change the entrance location too. When the bees understand where their entrance is, they build their infrastructure there and their comb and they arrange themselves and their resources considering that entrance where that airflow is coming from if throughout the year we continually modify and change now, now there's a top vent because it's summer now there's a second entrance because the nectar flow is on when we constantly do these things and i've done all those things by the way so when we do that we alter the interior patterns of activity for your bees in the hive so if you can keep that environment constant keep the entrance size and location constant then you're going to find out that your bees arrange themselves much better and they do much better overall. And it is very important if you're in a cold climate. Um, it doesn't say what state, country, city, anything here. But uh, if you're in a cold climate, that insulated inner cover and an insulated outer cover benefits the bees the most of anything I've ever done to my beehives. And I live in the snow belt. Now, would I change that configuration in summertime? Insulated inner cover. Don't need insulation in summer. This is not like putting on a heavy coat in winter for people and then putting on a jacket and then going to a t-shirt in summertime. For the bees, having an insulated cover is going to benefit them from summer heat. It's a shield and also benefits them as they try to retain their heat in the wintertime when they have to survive. So I don't recommend adding anything to your beehives that requires any kind of electricity or something that isn't going to be a constant for your bees throughout the year. That's how I think. So my configurations are the same everywhere for all of my hives. So I would not put one of those heated pads if you have chickens or you're raising reptiles, sure. And they're only 24 watts, by the way. But uh, there again, when the heat goes out, now it happens when the electricity goes down or whatever, unless you're fully solar powered. I am solar powered, but uh, I still have to consider um, the demands and what's necessary. And since bees do well without it, I see no need to add it. Question number 10. This comes from Michael from uh, 
Croton on Hudson, New York. I'm a first year beekeeper. I have an eight frame Langstroth flow hive with two deep brood boxes. I am located in lower New York State, Hudson Valley area, starting on September 30th. I've been seeing piles of what look like uncapping debris on the bottom board. The inspection tray, and so they're dark in color, have fine texture and align with the frame direction. Yeah, because they're falling between frames, so you'd see bands of them. I did an inspection this past weekend and found large areas on the center, five frames, both sides of the frame, and the lower brood box had been chewed all the way down to the foundation. It is only on frames that had brood. The outer frames with honey, nectar, pollen are untouched, and none of the frames in the upper brood box, apparently loaded with capped honey and nectar, have been affected. I thought it might be a mouse, but then I noticed that one of the frames is a wax and wire foundation, not plastic. If it were a mouse, I would have thought it would have chewed right through the wax foundation. Instead, there is a very definite outline of each cell remaining in the areas where the chewing was taking place. On that wax foundation, there is also no other evidence of mice, i.e. droppings, nest material, chewing on frames, or the boxes. I had the Flow Hive Entrance Reducer installed on September 30th. I also did a series of oxalic acid vapor treatments using a lower bees vaporizer through a back of the slatted rack starting September 23rd, October 12th due to high mite counts. My question is, is it possible that the bees are chewing the comb down to the foundation? If so, why? So resident bees, probably not. Could the oxalic acid vapor have caused the bees to do this? Unlikely, just because I've been using oxalic acid since it was legal here and I've never seen that. Or does it sound like mouse damage to me? It does actually sound like something is chewing away at those. Um, or if your bees are even being robbed, because check it out. The bees are higher up. This is happening on the lower frames. And the chewing right down to the foundation, this could actually be wasps. And the reason I say that is, while it's cold and the bees are clustered, mice are not, not mice, wasps are zipping into the entrances of your hives and they're accessing resources that your bees are not clustered over when it's still too cold for them. So we have this time frame. If you go out early in the morning, and I do, and you'll see wasps go and they zip right in the entrance. That's because your guard bees are not guarding yet. It's too cold for them. But they can't get to the valuable brood. They also don't go up through the cluster and get to the honey stores that are described here. Now keep in mind I'm speculating, but this is what I think is going on. So I think the wasps are coming in at the bottom and they're accessing everything that's unprotected by the bees below the cluster and they're chewing it up because they do exactly what's described here. If it were a mouse, you would see droppings because mice continually defecate no matter where they are, while they're walking, while they're eating, they defecate everywhere while they're out and about. They just constantly create waste. So it would be highly unlikely that if it were a mouse, that we would not see more evidence of other material chewing. I'm going with wasp. I'll be interested to see what my viewers and other people think might be the cause. It also says here, have you found that the Flow Hive entrance reducer is an adequate mouse guard? Well, Flow Hives generally don't have entrance reducers. Their standard entrance is about 3 eighths of an inch. And I don't know if this is the standard Flow Hive base or if it's the Flow Hive 2 
but I've not had mice gain entry to any flow hive entrances. They're already narrow enough. So I don't think it's a mouse. This hive has been very healthy all season. It's currently queen right and loaded with resources for winter. Now the smaller mouse guard installed. Thanks for advice. Okay. I'm guessing, Wasp, what do you think as a viewer, as a beekeeper? What do you think is getting in there? I think because they're not going up above them, I think that they're little robbers that are going in there and they're accessing stuff below. So that was my last question for the day. I want to thank you for being here. I do not have a shout out for today. If I can think of one a little later and I want to add it, it'll be down in the video description below. Please look also in the video description for any updates and resources and information for those who want to study more about things that we talked about today. So I hope that you've got your winter preps done if you're here in the Northern Hemisphere. Those of you who are down in Australia, good for you that things are going well down there and uh, people are already drawing off honey in New South Wales, for example. I also would like to get an update on the Varroa destructor mite situation in Australia. So for those of you who are down there, uh, have restrictions released a little bit? Are you allowed to migrate your bees around? What's going on in Australia? So thanks for being here and spending your time with me. I hope that you're getting your winter preps done. Think about cleaning dead bees out in winter time. You want to be able to scrape those things out of the bottom. One of the reasons people like to have secondary entrances in winter time is because they're worried that dead bees will pile up, block the entrance, and then now they need a second entrance. That's why they have an upper entrance. That's kind of the discussion. I say instead, for the backyard beekeepers, get something like this. This is less than five bucks from Bee Smart Designs, and it's for cleaning stuff out, and it reaches all the way in the back. I used them last winter for the first time, and they're great. So instead of relying on upper entrances, keep those closed up and then do routine cleanouts of dead bees. And I think you'll find out things are much better off in there. So thanks for watching and being here. I hope you have a fantastic weekend and that your winter preps are done and that your bees are going to go into winter healthy. The next thing coming up for your bees, of course, depending on where you are, these low brood periods will be your prime opportunity for that serious treatment of oxalic acid vaporization when it's going to have the greatest efficacy. No brood. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend.